c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. French and Fabulous. Uh, I am Jessica. And I'm Janelle. And I'm very, very sore. Not that that yes. affects the podcast, but just you should know that yeah, like, every part of me hurts right now. Know that at every moment that this podcast was recorded, Janelle was in lower body agony. I wore dumb shoes to a bar crawl, which is mm-hmm. basically the main way that I injure myself on a regular basis, but... <laughs> Just ballerina flats in a death wish. I learned last night that I'm not cool enough to go to speakeasies, which is a good thing. Mm, that's that's fun. That is, that is a fun journey to self-discovery. My friend told me <laughs> the, the speakeasy that we were going to meet at, and she gave me the address, so I went down there. And I just, like, walked up and down the block, and I was like, I don't get it. Like, this is where Google said it would be, but I don't see yeah. it. And then, like, my second lap down the block, I was like... Oh, that's not really a coffee shop with a line out front at eleven o'clock yeah, at night. Gonna, I was, I was gonna, I was gonna ask, like, what is the definition of a speakeasy under a legal regime where alcohol is fully available and fully legal? It's a legal bar that pretends to be illegal. Is basically yeah. <laughs> that's what that is. It's just like it's fun prohibition pretend. It is. It's like it's it's fun, and then you get to go home and not actually live under a totalitarian regime that prohibits alcohol and gives rise to gangsters like Al Capone. It's yeah, a fun it's like make-believe. it's all the f- it's all the fun about like of like going to an illicit bar where you're not supposed to be, but without creating a horrifying underground trade in alcohol and uh, the risk that you're going to get killed by bathtub moonshine. Yeah, that's. That's the place is actually called. That's very fun. The place is called Bathtub Gin, yeah. and they pretend <laughs> that is fun. They pretend that they make <laughs> their gin in a bathtub, which I mean, hopefully they do not. <laughs> for what they charge you for it, God, I hope not. Yeah, like just wow. For what they charge for it, it had better be made on the fucking moon. So, <laughs> yeah, I. That is the only way to justify. It this. took me two laps of a block to figure out that probably fifteen people don't line up to get into a coffee shop at eleven p.m. on a Saturday night. That seems suspicious. I was like, oh, I see. I get <laughs> that it. That is immediately. Oh, that's, I don't know why I didn't think of that's that. That's clever. I see what that you did there. That is clever. It's that's fun. You go in and there's like a fake coffee shop, which is like the the coat check. And then there's, like, mm. a fake panel on the wall that you're supposed to pull out. Oh, and that is fun. It's soundproof it's very... because the it's literally the loudest bar I've ever been to. Mm-hmm. I don't have any fillings, but if I did, they would have all been shaken <laughs> loose by now. Just just shook right out of your head. Just liquefied in your mouth. They're in cahoots with the local dentist trade because it just mm. just get them right out of there. Just melt the silver from your teeth. <laughs> the, the illusion's kind of broken by the fact that there's a picture mounted to mm. the part of the wall that you're supposed to pull on and it has a big label on it that says do not pull on picture frame <laughs> so if this was really prohibition we'd be arrested but oh immediately it's not apparently there is an actual speakeasy like an illegal one uh in the yeah. top of a five guys somewhere in the east village weird so like in the, in this particular instance the definition of speakeasy would be like they don't have a license they are too lazy to get a liquor license is basically 
The definition. <laughs> that's what that means. Yeah. That's what that means. The Five Guys brand does not approve. <laughs> I want to go to this speakeasy, but I also don't have the confidence to walk into a Five Guys and just confidently stroll behind the counter into the back room. <laughs> I don't have... I just... I do not have the brass balls to walk into a Five Guys and order a gin and tonic. <laughs> I, I can't. you got to go, like, into the back area and up the stairs, apparently. <laughs> And I just, I do not, I don't have the confidence to just be like, yes. I have been too well trained by my polite Canadian childhood to pull that kind of shit. (laughs) I can't, I can't do it. I just, no. No, That ain't me. No, apparently, uh, apparently it exists. It's called the Garrett. That is fun. And it's, it's sadly not illegal. But it serves burgers. Oh, that that is that is cool, but not peanuts, which is apparently it's an odd thing about Five Guys in New York. I'm not used to the idea. Apparently, it doesn't advertise at all, though. You have to know that it's there. Mm. You have to know it's there. So the secret menu at this particular restaurant exists, but it is alcoholic. But you do have to boldly stroll past the ordering station and onto the staircase. Oh, that's well, that's right out. That is right out. So definitely <laughs> be at the correct Five Guys. Absolutely. Do not be confusing for poor Bob and Pedro at the other five guys. They will not understand and they will be upset. <laughs> they do not get paid enough for no, this. No, they do not. But the five guys uh, does all the food for this bar and apparently they have exclusive menu items you cannot find at any other five guys in the world. Huh. That is fun. New York is a fun place. It is a fun place. And speaking of New York City, we have this mm. week's topic. Yay. Yay! I picked it so it's gonna be horrifying. Somebody's somebody probably died. We don't know, but probably. Oh, almost definitely somebody <laughs> dies this week. This is yeah. If you can still feel joy at the end of this yeah. uh, podcast, then I have failed. Good for you as a human. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm I'm unhappy. I don't want you to feel no like like, like life them. is worth living. Yeah. No, you. Sh- I'm talking to our listeners. I'm being direct. I'm engaging with the audience. You're breaking the fourth I wall. There's good. an illusion that we maintain here. Yeah. <laughs> like if you as a listener are somehow so sparklingly, like, like you just have that joie de vivre that cannot be taken down. Janelle and, and Janelle's depressing taste in, in extracurriculars is coming for your happiness like a fucking lioness on the Serengeti about to have a gazelle burger. I am basically... That's what's happening here. I am the dementor of podcasts. I just... I <laughs> suck all the joy out of you. Suck and all that's what the feeds joy. me. That's what I eat for food. Because I am a grad student and I can't afford anything else. (laughs) See the joy or nothing. (laughs) So this week we are talking about the life and disappearance of Barbara Newhall Follett, which you probably got from the title. Yay! So this is going to be just an overview of her life because I'm obsessed with it. And Hmm. because Barbara Newhall Follett achieved pretty much everything that I want to achieve in life. So she published a novel. She peaked creatively and personally at the age of 14. She moved to New York out of sheer desperation, made a terrible choice in husband, and then disappeared under mysterious circumstances at the age of 25, which is pretty much, uh... It's basically the Janelle dream. It is. That's that's all that I want. Is that too much that's to ask, all Jessica? You've ever wanted. Is that too much to ask for? It shouldn't be. <laughs> just a it I'm just a simple be, girl who wants simple things. <laughs> you know, just the little things in life. And an awful human <laughs> to share them with. That's all I want. Aww. She's basically my personal hero. <laughs> 
your role model, your idol. I've I've got a couple months left to disappear under mysterious circumstances at age twenty five, and I'm I believe I'm doing my best. I tried last night. I uh, <laughs> I was waiting. I found myself just due to personal circumstance. I found myself waiting for an Uber, which happened to be a SUV with tinted windows for some reason. Excellent. I was standing by the front gates of Columbia at five o'clock in the morning in evening wear, waiting for a dark tinted SUV to come pick me up. And I'm pretty sure the security guard was like, who was watching this happen, thought that I was about to go missing. That is literally the first, that is literally the cold open of every episode of SV, of, of Law and Order of, SVU. Yeah. Of Law, Law and Order SVU. That's literally, that's all that is. Yeah. It's basically all that that is. So I was, I was like, I'm pretty sure this man is, like, memorizing the details of my dress and hair so that he can correctly inform the NYPD where I was last seen alive. Mm. Because this just, this is not, this is not a thing that people who are okay (laughs) do to themselves. This is not rational behavior. No, and I forgot to text my mom when I got home. I tried to, and I just, I wasn't, I don't know, it didn't send. So I woke up to, like, 13 missed calls. (laughs) My mother was literally up all night <laughs> because oh she thought boy. that I had died. Oh she ended up calling my roommate, so my roommate came into my room to check on me while I was basically unconscious, just in a, in yeah. a small, manageable coma. My, my mother develops <laughs> just a mini coma. My mother develops specific close relationships with my nearest and dearest so that at any time she needs to, she can locate me physically by uh by proxy <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty much where we're at so yeah my mother <laughs> was just if if my roommate had not responded because only one of my roommates was home last night if my roommate had not responded i'm pretty sure my mother would have spent the morning on the phone with the nypd i would have been getting yeah, a fucking wellness check from the nypd <laughs> <sighs> like hey uh, seems here you have 13 unregistered dogs and uh, your mother's looking for you. I've, if the NYPD don't hate me by the time I'm done with New York, whatever that is, mm. Uh, mm. I will have failed. Yeah, you would have like you had one job, Janelle. That's why. <laughs> that's why. That's why I kept when I when I when I was down there, I kept waving to them with my wooden hand. I was wingmanning for you. Hey, they waved. I was rude. They waved for you. back. You've. They did wave back. They are hardened officers. They are, they've seen some shit. <laughs> hardened men and women of the NYPD. They have seen some shit. <laughs> um, so Barbara Newhall Follett was a literary prodigy. She was arguably one of the most brilliant literary minds of her generation. And if the circumstances of her life had been even a little bit different, you probably would have learned about her in your high school English class instead of learning about her on an obscure Canadian true crime podcast. So... What slender webs we weave. <laughs> so you should know that nothing from this point on is cheerful. This is this whole episode is just depressing as fuck. De- more depressing than fuck. I'm under the impression most people like fuck. That's true. Fuck is generally not depressing. Generally, fuck is a sign mm. that things are going well or that you are adequately sad and you have found another person to share in your hot, sweaty, disgusting sadness. It's the Janelle dream. Shut up. I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, god damn it. <laughs> now I've overshared. <laughs> the Jessica dream is eating is eating fancy mac and cheese at three in the morning and discussing politics. You know what? Actually, I think your way works better. <laughs> My 
way has never really worked out that well for me. I think I need to My way involved way more way more fancy parmesan. <laughs> mm, that's what we all want in this life. Mm. Fancy parmesan. That's the dream. <laughs> um Barbara Newhall Follett was born on March 14th of 1914 in Hanover, New Hampshire, a place that I can personally assure wow. you is a frozen wasteland devoid of happiness and all redeeming qualities. Good to know. I can also personally attest that the police there have no sense of humor <laughs> for reasons that I should probably not elaborate on on a podcast <laughs> that could be entered into the public Maybe record. Maybe we keep that We're going to keep that to ourselves, but take it from me. That falls... The Hanover police uh, do not have a sense of humor. They will they will not laugh it off. And it's not just having it's not all just good fun. Fuck you, Dartmouth. You're a terrible place for a school. <laughs> and the Dartmouth uh, public security officers share an, a similar lack of lack of humor. <laughs> just good to just know. an awful place full know. of sheep. <laughs> like literal sheep. Ah. Not not I'm not making a statement on people's gullibility here. They, it's literally full of sheep. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird American thing, like having the uh, sheep? small, isolated, <laughs> like isolated. No, like I'm fully aware that other like, places I'm, have sheep. I'm pretty sure the now. population of Wales is 85% sheep that figured out how to vote. I, I think you're underselling it. <laughs> it's at least 90. New Zealand. It, it has a massive sheep population. That's it's true. It's just sheep and hobbits <laughs> and weird birds. What else do you need? But no, like the American thing of just having small college towns. I, I went to Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. So I'm going to say that yeah. that, that has spread. <laughs> mm. But like most major Canadian universities are in cities. That's true. Not all people get to, to live in a joyous place like Sackville. Where I routinely, oh, on more than one occasion, I had to wait to cross the street because the one-armed tractor driver that lived in my town was driving his tractor down the road at 10 kilometers an hour. Hey, there's no need to call out the one-armed tractor driver I'm calling him out. Sackville. He made me late for chemistry class. <laughs> We're coming for you, one-armed, one-armed tractor driver from, from Sackville. You're on our list. You can't cross when there's farm equipment on the road, so... Mm. <laughs> wonderful place wonderful place <laughs> that is is that what a tractor sounds like no tractors are much louder but i can't do a proper imitation of a tractor damn it now how will you attract a tractor mate <laughs> you can't make a tractor mating call yeah I, I i'm gonna need to work on it i see that you do <laughs> but but i can always attract the sheep ah! there you go so barbara newhall follett's father was Wilson Follett, a Harvard-educated writer, editor, and professor at Brown University and then Dartmouth College, who is best known for a style guide called Follett's Modern American Usage, which some- huh. Yeah, some of you were forced to buy that in college. Yeah. I know I was. Um, Your lives have been touched by this man. It's just a style guide about- He brought light into the he world. He did. It was actually published uh, posthumously, because it was unfinished huh. when he died, but apparently it was such a brilliant guide- to modern usage of the English language that it was finished up and released after his death. Yeah, well. So, yeah, well, that's a fun, what a fun thing. Sometime fame only comes to the truly great. Some people, times people are only recognized after After they time. die. He's, he's the Van mm. Gogh of modern English style guides. Beautiful. Her father was also Traffic. an author in his own right. He wrote a novel called No More Sea, which was the second runner-up for the 1934 Pulitzer Prize in fiction. So... Oh, he actually I've never heard of it. Yeah, me neither and I could actually could not find a copy of it online, but he um he apparently that was no slouch. Fun. 
now that I've said that, I'm sure that uh, Seth, our resident research, unofficial post-episode research intern. And official pedant. <laughs> yeah, will mail me a copy with suspicious bloodstains on the corner. Procured from a location I don't want to know about. Why never, Janelle? He would never get get a book stained by blood. He has too much respect for books. Do not tell Seth where I live. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he probably already knows. Oh, good. Barbara's mother was Helen Thomas Follett, a children's writer. She also wrote several moderately successful titles with silly names like Magic Portholes, Men of the Sulu Sea, and Third Class Ticket to Heaven. I don't know what that... That's that that last one's about. It sounds like a comedy. I I dearly hope it's not a drama. I I since because it came out in the 30s, I'm just going to assume that it's deeply racist. <laughs> just so just maybe just implicitly but deeply deeply. Racist. You know who gets third class tickets to heaven? Poor yeah, people. The Irish. The Irish. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Um, her most famous writings, though, are the writings that she wrote about her far more famous daughter, which, mm. ouch, that's, that's gotta hurt. Rough. You spend your whole life trying to make a name for yourself as an author, and the only thing people care about are the books you write about your author daughter. <laughs> that is rough. <laughs> Helen Follett actually lived two blocks from where I wrote the notes for this episode. Oh. She lived right behind the deli where I buy lunch every day. And she died at the hospital where I do advocacy work, which is kind of fun. It's like you're walking in her foot. New York is a neat place. Sometimes there's just famous people just did important things. Just history everywhere. You're just tripping over it. Yeah. You're just just coated in the stuff. The place where... Just history everywhere. Yeah, a disinterested man makes you a chicken parm sandwich every day is just just in the shadow of history. Just a treasure trove of... Treasure trove of the past. Yeah. I also learned while researching this episode that the NY, the New York Times used to just print your home address in your obituary, which is the only reason that I know where she lived. (laughs) Yeah. That is, that is the opposite of fun. Yeah. I I could go, I could post a picture of Barbara's mom's apartment because I know exactly where it is. They put it in her obituary. That is genuinely weird. I feel like it just is a reflection of New York's housing crisis that like, People wanted to know when apartments were opening up. <laughs> <laughs> that was really what it was when for. When you're house just... hunting, you don't check the classifieds. You go straight to the obits. You straight for the obits. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I'm just imagining, like... Like, I'm not saying that everybody would do this, but, like, there's gonna be, have to be the... Like, the, the reason why they stopped has to be, like, the odd Albert Fish-type individual just sending, like, really disturbing mail to people who've recently had a loved one die. Awesome. Yeah. That has to be why. If, if your home address gets printed in the New York Times now, that just, like, you're gonna die. Basically. People will send you semen. It's gonna be, yeah. It doesn't matter- They'll send you ejaculate in the mail. It doesn't matter why your address is being printed, you're not okay. You need to hire some no. security and get a dog. You're gonna be very <laughs> unokay in the next five minutes. It's not good. <laughs> so it was apparent from a young age that Barbara was an extremely intelligent child. She became obsessed with language and words at the age of three. Um, She was homeschooled by her mother, which was not uncommon for the era. And the couple actually always looked for new ways to encourage her genius. So her father actually wrote an article about the whole thing, his experiments in parenting her in Harper's Magazine, saying that she was always seeing letters in things that she looked at. He said, she was always seeing A's in the gables of houses and H's in football goalposts, and that she demanded more information about new objects by saying, tell me a story about it. So apparently she's a child with basic letter recognition. 
Wow, that's amazing. I'm pretty sure I was like, still eating dirt by the fistful at age three, so. Eh, I could read. Actually, though, that's not true. I, I could read. I was an ass about yeah. it, too. Um, my mom has... Every time my mom um, brags about me to her various friends and family, which is constantly because, God, who wouldn't? Frequently. Who wouldn't? She likes to explain what a little asshole I was because my mom <laughs> would be tired and she just didn't want to read infinite stories to a demanding three-year-old. So she would try to skip pages, but because I could read... If she skipped sentences or pages or paragraphs, I'd be like, no, 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 mommy, you read it wrong. Like, I apparently, my mother didn't get to sleep because I needed to hear how fucking Hop on Pop ended for the 15th time. It's a fun story about my childhood. Honestly, we're the same person. We are, we are kind of the same person. We are. <laughs> we're kind of the same person. My mother had exactly the same problem. Every time we compare notes about our childhoods, like we're the same person, just, you know, you're from your planet and I'm from mine. Yeah, yeah. Mine like, being we, Earth. <laughs> yeah, we're basically like the same exact person except a different species. It's it's uncanny. <laughs> it's like we're like alternate dimensions versions of the same being. <laughs> you fell through a wormhole and now we got a podcast together. Yeah, we, we we really we we missed out. We should have arrived in the like we should we, we arrived in the nineties. We really should have like scaled it back so we were just just in time for our weird quirky nineties odd odd couple comedy. <laughs> we could have had a sitcom. God damn it! I know, but like you were still, we were both still busy like potty training and learning how to talk and walk at the same time. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> what could have been awesome. So Barbara began writing her first poetry at the age of four, and I actually have a poem here that she wrote at the age of seven, which was written to accompany a piece of music, because apparently she was also quite a gifted musician, but since I, mm. I have no idea what the tune's supposed to be, I'm just going to recite it. So she wrote, When I go to orchestra rehearsals, there are often several passages for the triangle and tambourine together. When they are together, they sound like a big piece of metal has broken into thousands and is falling to the ground. Which I think is not bad for a seven-year-old. Yeah, like that's that's above average. That is quite eloquent. Like that that's an unusual level of expression for a very small child. Yeah, when I was 7, I was much less interested in writing poetry about tambourines and much more interested in making repetitive obnoxious noises with them. So, mm. she did good. When when I was 7, I think they took me aside to give me a reading test in the hallway. No, I might have been younger than Nothing, nothing good sense. happens when they pull you out into the hallway. And <laughs> they pulled me out into the hallway. They pulled everybody out into the hallway, and they gave us private private reading tests. And they were getting me to read, like, Clifford the Big Red Dog or something of that caliber. And, like, I had been reading since, like, three years old. So I just answered all of their questions sarcastically, and they came to the conclusion that I was illiterate. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so by being a tiny little asshole, I managed to convince <laughs> convince my school that I was in fact deeply behind on reading. <laughs> <laughs> my mother was perplexed. <laughs> I nobody believes this who knows me now because I have just discovered how to be an asshole, I guess. But uh, mm. I used to be incredibly shy. And I had a teacher once send a note home asking that I be tested for selective mutism. Really? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I just didn't speak in the seventh grade. I just. I wasn't feeling it. It yeah, just. It wasn't the right time. Just. It wasn't you. Puberty you know, you was were, like waiting for your big debut. Oh, puberty was like, bearing you know. down on me like a fucking semi truck, and I was just a deer <laughs> in headlights. I just didn't know what to do. 
I didn't know what like to say. Like a cow in front of an oncoming yeah, train. Just, just frozen, <laughs> wide-eyed, nothing to say. <laughs> I got over it now, though. Now, now you listen to my voice for an hour a week, so, you know. I actually did have selective mutism, so that is fun. That's fun. It's, you mm. know, doesn't apply. To now You, too, also now spend a lot of your I time. I was also painfully shy. That's good. A career in uh, podcasting and radio is uh, exactly what, what people go for for that one. <laughs> That's what I needed. Excellent. <laughs> I just, I spent so much time not talking. Now I just can't shut up. Hooray. <laughs> so when Barbara was around four years old, there was kind of a big turning point for her when her parents introduced her to the typewriter which was something that children weren't usually allowed to play with in those days. So, I mean, typewriters are sort of a relic now, but manual typewriters were expensive back in the day. In the 1910s, oh, no they doubt. cost a fortune. And if you ever actually... That's like, like it's the equivalent of like a professional computer now, like, yeah. in terms of like, like why you would need one and why you would have one. Oh, exactly. So, if you've ever actually used a manual typewriter for any reason, you know that those fuckers jam constantly. If you're just pounding away at the keys like an idiot, like, you're gonna fuck things up. Yeah. I actually collect manual typewriters because I went through this weird phase where I was like, Stephen King wrote on one, goddammit. And <laughs> I now own so many- You pretentious little shit. Yeah, I own enough typewriters that now I can't back down. I have to collect them. <laughs> <laughs> I won't admit that I was wrong. <clears throat> no. Thanks. This habit is purely based on inertia at this point. No, d- and I was completely wrong. That's exactly the way I feel about human skulls. Um. Okay, we we had a rule about self-incrimination on this podcast. <laughs> you admitted to going to a speakeasy. Mm, which is legal. <laughs> it's just a fake one, so... We just we have a Fifth Amendment policy on this podcast, not a bridge in PEI. Yep. We're not going to build PEI Bridge. We use the American Fifth Amendment, where we do not self-incriminate on the podcast. And Hey, hey. Janelle has a rule about self-incrimination. I have a rule about PEI ha- having access to the main- mainland. We are expressions of our different different adoptive slash native, native lands, like, like, national character. I try not to self-incriminate, and you apparently uh, float face down in the Northumberland Strait, in the hopes that people will cross you to get to PEI. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm proud of it. <laughs> what a hobby. It's what this country is about. <laughs> oh my god. So, uh, I've spent enough of my time and energy trying to restore 1940s era typewriters to working order to know that I would not hand one to a child under any circumstances. Mm. But they did. And having access to- Probably gonna lose an eye. Oh my god, right? They- they're just- you have to get the stupid ribbons on, and then you just- Mm. if you jam the keys, you've gotta- oh, they're terrible. Don't type on a typewriter. Also, it takes way more finger strength than your weak little 21st century fingers have. Yeah, you're gonna- you're not just gonna carpal tunnel, you're gonna get super carpal tunnel. (laughs) You're gonna get ultra mega carpal tunnel. You're gonna have frozen flippers for hands. You're just gonna snap an ulna. Oh, good. Yep. Right, right there. But for Barbara, <laughs> having access to a typewriter completely changed her life. So, like, young children basically have the motor coordination of a paralyzed duckling. So Barbara was really frustrated that her writing skills were not strong enough, were, were not able to keep up with her pencil skills. She mm. could write and think of ideas much better than she could actually get them down on paper, which she found incredibly frustrating. So typing was so much easier for her. She was finally able to get her thoughts down quickly and accurately in a way that she could reread and that other people could read, which was a big deal. Okay, but literally, is she me? 
She might be. This you you might be a how old? A hundred and four year old uh, literary prodigy. It's entirely plausible, from, isn't it? From New Hampshire, I guess. <laughs> it all makes sense now. <laughs> you were just in storage for a couple of years, and they dusted you off. <laughs> the coolant was a little too powerful. So the family moved to New Haven, Connecticut, because her father got a job at Yale University Press. Uh, her early life was basically just a grand tour of the Ivy League. She, she just lived <laughs> in every major Ivy League city. So in the New Haven house, she had her own study with her own typewriter. Spoiled little shit. My goodness. Right? I would kill for that Joking parents. I don't have my own study with my own typewriter, and I'm a 25-year-old grad student, so... I don't even own a desk. I don't even own a chair. I just have, like, a plastic bin that I put, that, like, I decided last week to put my microphone on. Okay, to be clear, that is not poverty. That is just you not owning furniture. You can fully (laughs) afford furniture. You have the money and the means to get furniture. You just choose to live your entire life on the floor like you're a Japanese monk. I technically have a mattress, but I keep it in the living room. You hold dinner parties, and you don't have any furniture. People just come to your house and eat on the floor. I like it. It's avant-garde. You have basically a Japanese hostel (laughs) in your home. (laughs) You are, like, a couple, like, just a few more long-term guests away from being... A human trafficking organization. That's what it looks like. <laughs> mostly, a very odd one that mostly traf- traffics in like in like middle class edu- educated people. Yeah, you have a, a place in Vancouver with no furniture where people come and go for several days at a time. Not even slightly suspicious. No, not not in the slightest. So Barbara wrote her first forty five hundred word fairy tale story titled "The Life of the Spinning Wheel, the Rocking Horse, and the Rabbit" at the age of five. Um, and I I won't read the full thing to you because this podcast is so incredibly fucked up by now that I think reading a wholesome fairy tale on the podcast will actually make my microphone catch on fire. Yeah, it's just it's not ready for that kind of thing. It's not. It's been it's been too traumatized. <laughs> Sometimes at night, the light just blinks on and off as it tries to, like, hyperventilate itself to sleep. (laughs) It's not even plugged in. It just turns on and screams. (laughs) It's too haunted by now. Oh, good. The memories of the damned and the forgotten. (laughs) Aw, poor little microphone. But uh, the the fairy tale starts like this. So it goes, Once upon a time, though I can't say exactly when, there lived in a far-off country a spinning wheel, a rocking horse, and a rabbit. They knew many of the people in that country. They lived in a house with many pretty things in it, such as I am going to tell you about. Amethysts, turquoise, opals, pearls, diamonds and rubies, and precious stones of all kinds. Which, adorable. It's cute. It's cute. I mean, it's really good for a five-year-old. It is incredibly good for a five-year-old. It is incredibly good for a five-year-old. It's better than most adults. It is. All of her writing has, like, a very, uh, it's got a cadence to it. It's very precocious. Yeah, it is. That's, that's, That's the whole thing that she's known for. So when Barbara was eight years old, she decided that it was enough no longer to write childish things. No more childish things. We must all put them away at some point or another. And I am an adult now. (laughs) She'd had enough of this uh, amateur dabbling. She decided Mm. it was time to try her hand at something much more ambitious. She was going to write a full novel. Yes. Obviously. Obviously. 
So Barbara spent hours alone in her study with her typewriter every day and was very insistent that she get her writing time in. Like, you did not fucking mm. get between Barbara and her fucking writing time. <laughs> she would cut you. Mother, I don't need a nap. I need to finish my the next chapter. No, genuinely, <laughs> Barbara was a little sass basket. She's a delightful human. <laughs> she, on, while she was writing on her novel, she kept a typewritten note pinned to her door that read as follows. Nobody may come into this room if the door is shut tight. If it is shut, not quite latched, it is all right, without knocking. The person in this room, if he agrees that one shall come in, will say, come in, or something like that. And if he does not agree to it, he will say, not yes, not yet, please, or something like that. The door may be shut if nobody is in the room, but if a person wants to come in, knocks, and hears no answer, that means there is no one in the room and he must not go in. Reason. If the door is shut tight and a person is in the room, the shut door means that the person in the room wishes to be left alone. She's, Damn. she's very clear with her wishes unambiguous firm i find it so adorable that she's using the masculine neutral i was gonna say she is daddy's she is i was just i was just gonna bring that up the the pronoun he used to be much more gender neutral than it is now Mm -hmm. and they use it basically like that like singular it was it used to have kind of the same role as singular they but it was it's a very formal way of speaking Oh my goodness, yes. And she she's daddy's little sass it's basket. Just off of saying calling one one. Oneself. The royal one. we. Using the royal we like one does not care to be disturbed at this time, mother. I do not one does not wish for juice or cookies. <laughs> for all of my American friends who are confused, um the queen has to refer to herself in plural mm. at all times. I don't know wh- Yeah, either one or we. Yeah. She so if if they're like if they wake her up in the morning and they ask if she wants a biscuit, they're like, we would like a biscuit. Like, she, she's not in... Well, one is a bit peckish. She has to pr- refer to herself in third-person plural. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why this is done, but she's mm-hmm. our queen, and I don't know. She gets what she wants. Or neutral third-person singular. Yeah, it's either one or we. That's it. She can't be like, mm-hmm. yes, I want a cookie. She's gotta be like... No. At least not in public. There's no I. At least not in public. No, it, 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 it's sort of a thing where, like, the general philosophy about that is because, like, when you are the queen or the You king, speak for all you your subjects. You speak for all your subjects. All of my subjects would like a cookie. <laughs> and we would. Can, we would like a cookie. Can confirm. Thank you, your majesty. We would be delighted to have a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that woman. Even if Even if she didn't have her face on all of our money, I would... I'd like her. (laughs) So, Barbara was a fairly prolific writer. She could write up to 4,000 words in a day, which is a lot if you're on a manual typewriter. Oh my god. And it's a lot even for a professional adult author. If George R.R. Martin could write 4,000 words a day... uh, The next book be out. Oh my god. Game of Thrones would have been done in, like, 2002. Like, Mm -hmm. he started writing those... He's been writing those books for as long as I've been alive. Yeah. And uh, we're still waiting. We're, uh, we're yeah, still the, waiting. The TV show is recent, but the, the books are not. Yeah, it's... We're we're long past the books. We're just... They're just making shit up as they go along now. We're just sailing away into the night. Woo! Barbara also came up with an entire new planet for her novel to be set on, and, and including a, a new language that she developed using a blank card catalog because she was much smarter than you are. Just... Not you, Jessica, but just you, audience. She's smarter than all of us. <laughs> All of us in general. All of us. The general you, which is another interesting grammar point. Yeah. <laughs> We're having a grammarical day. Woohoo! Yeah, she she invented a new language with a new grammar and a new writing system. Like, she was just... She she really went for it. She was the Gerald Tolkien of small children. She was. 
Um, <laughs> and like I said, she was she was a little sass basket. Like she was in the habit of writing letters to her friends because this is just what you did. This was texting in her day. Mm-hmm. And when one of her friends got upset that Barbara was spending so much time locked away in her room, Barbara wrote her a letter that read, You don't understand why I have my work to do, because at this particular time, you have none at all. <laughs> She's saucy. Damn, she that is some saucy hot kid. tea. <laughs> that is a saucy child. <laughs> yeah, she spent most of her time alone and she wasn't bothered by it at all. Um, she mm. had a very um, active imagination, and she often pretended that famous composers, Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, eh, eh, all these famous composers she was obsessed with, lived in her house and went ice skating with her, which is kind of cute. Oh. Yeah. I don't know how to feel about a child whose imaginary friend is Beethoven. Yeah, she just- On the one hand, they must have an incredibly rich life. On the other hand, I'm not sure they're entirely okay. Did she have to learn <laughs> sign language to communicate with imaginary Beethoven? <laughs> I I don't know if he even signed. I don't I don't think he did. I don't know. You just shouted well, at him. Maybe lip reading would have been sufficient. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he's he's her imaginary Beethoven. He can do whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah, he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> he can hear if he wants to. Her uh, fuck it. Her obs- he can ice skate. I don't know if real Beethoven. I don't. Could ice I skate. don't think real Beethoven can ice this skate. This has been lost to time, or at very least has been <laughs> lost to me. Nobody wrote down the really important things. Yeah, like, 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 yeah, yeah, Moonlight Sonata, whatever. Did he ice skate? <laughs> this is what I need to know. Field hockey is not the same as real. Did he ice skate? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about the history of ice skating. He but... definitely didn't inline skate. I have no reason to, like, I have no reason, no evidence that he did not inline skate. I'm just saying. Did you? He definitely I don't did think not. Beethoven went rollerblading. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Beethoven, ro- I'm willing to stand by that. I didn't major in history in college, but I feel confident in that, in that uh, one. Beethoven definitely didn't rollerblade. I'm calling it now. Not with Bach and Mozart. <laughs> definitely not. Perhaps... They definitely did not go out rollerblading together. No. At the very least. With a little girl. No. Can you imagine if, like, all, they all had, like, a roller derby team? <laughs> that would be delightful. I would watch that. With the little skirts and everything? Yeah, just every time they roller derby, it's just like, uh, da-da-da-da-da. That's the only music that they... <laughs> no, they specifically move in, like, 4-4 four, four time. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was wonderful. It would be so well choreographed. <laughs> but Barbara's obsession with Mozart is kind of fitting, because they did lead eerily similar lives as child mm. prodigies. Barbara's novel suffered a setback when her manuscript was lost in a house fire, along with oh, her house. But uh, by 1926, she had written and extensively revised a 40,000-word manuscript called The House Without Windows about a lonely child named Epersip who disappears into the woods to make friends with animals. Yeah. Uh, kids, kids' books were different back then. I don't, I don't know. They were very different. They're, they involved way more death and way more weirdness. A lot more. No, kids' books were a lot weirder back in the day. People did a lot just, more just narcotics. Disturbing. <laughs> there was a lot more oh, open narcotics. So use. many more drugs. Ignore me, I'm currently hugging my roommate. Oh, apparently we're taking a hug break in this podcast. We're taking a hug break. I am embracing a man de- near and dear to me. Oh. My heart, my soul, he's struggling to get away. <laughs> <laughs> kick, roommate, kick. <laughs> he's like he's like an over he's like an overly <laughs> an overly harassed rabbit. <laughs> get the knees. Sweep her knees. That's her weak point. <laughs> um he is gone. <laughs> okay. A lot of people have found her novel kind of creepy on hindsight because Barbara herself disappeared. 
which is sort yeah, of... Yeah, that does have, like, a There weird, are a like... lot of parallels between what happens in her book and Barbara's eventual disappearance. Uh, I haven't actually read the book, but apparently the whole thing has this odd kind of ethereal, otherworldly feel to it. Which, I mm. mean, the main character's named Epersip, and it takes place on a different planet, yeah. so, you know. You would assume it feels kind of... Because it is otherworldly. Yeah. Like, just explicitly. Draw your own conclusions here. But, mm. uh... Barbara's father helped her with the edits, and he was originally planning to have it Vanity published, which, for people who are not obsessed with the publishing industry, uh, mm-hmm. it's basically when you... It's it's like a pay-to-play publishing. It's... Yeah, like, you really want your book published, but no publisher is... Ne- like, there's not necessarily a publisher who's, like, waiting to pay you for it, so you pay a publisher to publish it. Before you could self-publish on Amazon, you had to basically pay a print shop to make several copies of it. That was Vanity Publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which you can still do if you really want to. Yeah, there's 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 places that will print on demand for you. But uh, mm-hmm. her father had been doing some editing work for Knopf, which again, if you're really into books, you're going to immediately recognize that name. And if you are not into books, that just sounds like a German. It sounds like a sneeze in German. But um, they're a big deal. And she decided, he decided that they should submit the manuscript to Knopf. And they actually accepted it. The book was accepted a couple of days after wow. Barbara's 12th birthday. So happy birthday. That's a big deal for any writer to be published by them. And for, oh, absolutely. for a 12-year-old. Never mind when you're 12. Essentially unheard of. So mm-hmm. The House Without Windows was released in February of 1907. That's a year that happened yeah, that is, 2,000 that is years a ago. Year. Mm. Most countries <laughs> didn't have a writing system at that point. Um <laughs> Uh, that is that is well into shitting in hovels territory. Yeah, we're t- it might even be pre-hovel. Most most of the population was soundly illiterate at the time. Uh, no, 1927, <laughs> February of 1927, The House Without Windows comes out, and it forever changes the course of Barbara Newhall Follett's life. It was an immediate success. So she received rave reviews in the Saturday Review of Literature, who called the book almost unbearably beautiful, and the New York Times, which actually ran a photo of her correcting her galley proofs. She was sort of both novelty and genius. Like, she was... The novelty of a 12-year-old being successful was a big deal, but also she had the brilliance to back this up. Look at this creepy book written by this adorable child. It was was apparently beautifully written, though, and it it wasn't just like a novelty Mm. that 12-year-old's publishing. It's it's brilliant. So she Mm -hmm. was asked to write book reviews of the newest A.A. Milne books, which is the author of Winnie the Pooh, although he wrote a lot more than Winnie the Pooh. I think he would be sort of annoyed that that's his most famous work. (laughs) He wrote a lot of stuff. He did. Famous writers like H.L. Mencken were writing congratulatory letters to her parents. Um, people were sending telegrams full of praise, which was what you did back then. Back in the And day. someone had to pay to send you that telegram, so you know that they meant mm-hmm. it. It was... It's not like Twitter, where you just, like, you just fire off a tweet to Justin Bieber congratulating him on... Has he done anything worth being congratulated? He's basically, He's like really into Jesus now. Barbara. He's doing, Barbara he's doing less now, but yes, he, he was a child prodigy sort of thing. Yeah, now you can fire off a, a tweet and then just go back to being racist on the internet, but mm-hmm. back in the day, you had to put your... My favorite hobby. Yeah, put your money where your mouth was. Um, mm. And uh, the Times ran another article about her, about her plans for her second book. Famous author Anne Carol Moore wrote an article for the New York Herald Tribune suggesting that although Barbara was clearly a gifted writer, it probably wasn't the best idea in the world to suddenly thrust a 12-year-old into an international spotlight of fame and success instead of letting her have a normal childhood. 
Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, everyone maybe not. pretty much ignored this article because, you know, <laughs> child prodigies always... Because we were having so much fun! Child prodigies always turn out fine. They never have disastrous yeah. adult lives fraught with mental illness and personal troubles. <laughs> never. No, they're fine. I've never heard of it. Oh, God, they're okay. They're they're fine. Everybody's fine. I think, like, Macaulay Culkin is the most, like, stable child star, and he looks like he's a homeless meth addict. He he genuinely does. He's like a. He looks a lot more like Steve Buscemi than he really should. Aww. But like, if Steve Buscemi did hard drugs, just hard drugs. But he's had. He has like an internet show now, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's doing fine. He's completely yeah, he's fine. Doing fine. I'm glad. He's good. Amanda Bynes less so. Yeah. Less so. Brittany's doing okay. She had a bit of a hard hard trip though. Yeah, it's been it's been a ride. It has been a wild ride. Yeah, Barbara was fucking furious about this article. She was goddamn furious. So she she wrote a reply that says, How dare you express adult-like concern for my immediate well-being? I am an adult. Oh, I mean, I mean, she had stronger words. She was, she's basically the writing strongly <laughs> worded letters before, you know, that was a phrase. She wrote, It is surely very rash to slam down into the mud a childhood and a system of living that you know nothing about. I am very much amused at the favorable reviews which are being written. I do not take them at all seriously, but I do take seriously an article which distorts into a miserable caricature my living, my education, and my whole personality. Ooh. Woo! Ooh. You do not cross... Things are hitting up in the, in the, in the child literary market. Whew. You do not fuck Things with Barbara. Getting... Do not. Oh, she's like the Ronda Rousey of the day. Oh yeah, she will. She will cut you on the inside with her words. Yeah. She she's gonna she's gonna give you like a one round knockout, purely purely with purely with telegraph disdain. <laughs> For the record, and in fairness to Barbara, though, twelve year old me would have been every bit as furious if somebody called into question my ability to handle sudden international fame, and I have literally never <laughs> been even a little bit famous ever. Oh, absolutely. But if someone had come to me at 12 and been like, you you know, you couldn't handle it if you were, like, suddenly to become internationally famous overnight, I would be like, fuck oh, you. Yeah. I would look you in the eyes and be like, you don't know me. You don't me. know me. You don't know what I've been through. My stable, suburban upbringing. Fuck you. Yeah. Largely sheltered from the evils of the world. Ugh. <sighs> you don't even get it. Yeah, I would do the whole, Ugh. Whatever. <sighs> Ever. Yeah, no, and I've I've never been even a little bit famous, and I no. would have gone straight off the rails if I was. So <laughs> I wouldn't even oh. have waited to adulthood. I would have just gone straight to like buying airplanes and going naked in public. Like there would have been just <laughs> absolutely yeah, not. The, the, the first known incident of a of a twelve year old in a full mink coat. <laughs> oh yeah, I'd start smoking the long cigarettes in holders, like just. Mm. Just a disaster. I would. You would have been a monster. Yeah, <laughs> I would. I would have to be kept in a secure facility right now for my own safety. They would. They would probably put me on a boat and floated me out to sea. Mm. But Barbara at twelve was done with kid stuff. She was deadly serious about her next novel, which she intended to set on a boat. So, in order to get experience at sea, her parents arranged for her to sail to Nova Scotia as a crew member aboard a schooner, which is kind of fun. No, that is that is very fun and potentially dangerous. Yeah, so apparently, no, back back then you could be a 13-year-old schooner crew member if you just fucking felt like it. Yeah. If your m- mummy and daddy mummy and daddy arranged it. Yeah. All right. She spent July of 1927 at sea 
at the age of 13, and she handed in the manuscript titled The Voyage of Normandy to the publisher in November. And then the book had shelves in March of 1928, 12 days after she turned wow. 14. So, once again, the book was universally praised and was an instant success. People no longer saw her work as the work of a delightful, entrancing, gifted child, but they saw this as the mature work of a serious author. Mm -hmm. But, unfortunately, what Barbara didn't know at the time was that she had reached the peak of her life. Unfortunate. Unfortunate. This was the absolute peak of her life. You do not want to peak at 14. No. You no, you don't. Like, I can attest. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. If I peaked at 14, it's less like, damn. Oh no. It's not good. Oh god. It's like if you peak at 14, you better hope you're dead by dead dead by 14 and a half. <laughs> 14 was like the age when I was starting to come out of my like middle school goth phase. Just just enough. Oh, I yes. still had a little little tinge of goth. I still had pink hair. Mm, just a little bit of punk. But I hadn't yet mm. like completely given up on adhering to human social norms, so it's it's just been downhill mm. from there. It's just been <laughs> like a ski slope. <laughs> I just slaloming between between social propriety and utter utter hedonism. Base yeah, just swerving around failed relationships to bad ideas to fleeing the country. <laughs> Just just around and around. Bad relationship, move 3,000 miles away. Bad relationship, move 3,000 miles away. It's the Janelle Como story. That's <laughs> great. Slowing through bad from bad decision to bad decision. Janelle Como. Just, just gonna, just gonna pick it up speed the whole time. Hmm. Eventually I'll trip and it'll be like, you know, when a snowball, in you know, like a cartoon when you start to snowball. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. me. Try to save that from... Try to do that before you get famous. Don't let anyone, like, collect <laughs> evidence on this. Oh, God. Well, I mean, Barbara's life did about the same thing, but unlike me, Barbara's wasn't her fault. Mine, mine is fully mm. my fault. But it's... Uh... They, let you, they let you mature to adulthood to make your own mistakes. Oh, yeah, and I have, I have done that. Yes. <laughs> Can confirm. <laughs> 100%. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up at Columbia, so we did, we did okay. <laughs> apparently apparently you can get you a girl who can do both <laughs> ivy league education dating insane people just just both <laughs> i'm like i spent spent all of yesterday like volunteering volunteering for the peace of the city then 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 spent the rest of the night like doing a bar crawl and ballerina flight. i counted not, I'm not gonna go into details because we have a self-incrimination clause in my life, mm -hmm. but I think I counted eight misdemeanors on that bar crawl. Not by me, <laughs> but by the people that I choose will, to associate with. We will not specify who they were or what they did, but it was deeply illegal. I can <laughs> confirm that there is more urine on the subway than there was yesterday. We'll say that. Ah, uh, beautiful. Um, it's been... <laughs> been fully christian it is not mine <laughs> all that matters i'm proud of you janelle <laughs> so throughout her life barbara had a very close relationship with her father this was her trusted editor her greatest encouragement her main confidant her brother her brother her father who those are not a relationship you <laughs> want to get confused that is a little more scandalous than i Yikes. thought uh no her father <laughs> was the one who encouraged her who wrote about her extensively he was he was her source of inspiration he was the one who really guided her writing career her cheerleader yeah yeah and and her collaborator he edited everything she wrote mm -hmm. so he started to spend more and more time in new york city and less and less time in new haven as 1927 went on 
And in April of 1927, Barbara wrote him a letter that read, Dear Daddy, it seems to us that New York must be a sort of Louis XI's palace, full of snares, <laughs> temptations, pitfalls, traps, and everything else for enticing and entangling its helpless victims, which is the most prolific way a child will ever, like, call their father out for abandonment. <laughs> By comparing New York City to the palace of Louis XI. It seems to us... That you have gone out for the milk, dear father, and you have yet to return. <laughs> no child will ever call out its parent for abandonment in, in a more... In quite that way. Yeah, not, not quite with that language. So a week before the voyage of the Norman D came out, Barbara's father, Wilson, announced that he was leaving the family to be with his 20-year-old secretary. He, oh, he had just turned oh 40 and was having something of a midlife crisis. Yeah, the ma ma Madame de Montpensier of, of of her day. Yeah, Madame de Montespan, the Madame de Montespan of her day. Um, yeah, Barbara was absolutely devastated by the news, and she felt very abandoned by the person that she loved the most because she she was. Yeah, jeez, yeah, because that's explicitly what happened. <laughs> the The letter that she wrote her father after he announced the the divorce actually still exists. Um, I'll post a link to it. And it is absolutely heartbreaking. She, oh, it's she's just basically wants to know. But why. I bet it's so beautifully crafted. Oh, it's it's gorgeous, but it's <laughs> <laughs> just fueled by the tears of an unloved child and very systemic. Like she goes through her reasons why he's being a shit dad and he shouldn't abandon her, but <laughs> but he did. Um, and her father had been the family breadwinner, and when he left, he basically cleaned them out. So he left the family. Oh, yeah, that is not. Cool. Oh, her father is is. I mean, yeah. I am a modern. I'm modern individual, and I think that if you are unhappy in your marriage, you should be allowed to get a divorce. Yeah, but there is something about abandoning your child and your wife and taking all the money with you that just seems deeply uncool, especially in a day and age where your wife is unlikely to have the means of supporting herself. Well, she's a, she's a children's <laughs> author. But yeah, like, you know, divorce people, definitely divorce your wife rather than murdering her and throwing her into the ocean. Like, if you're un- Strong preference. If you're unhappy, you can leave, you can marry other people, it's okay, these things happen. Like, leaving your child destitute? Mm, mm. That's okay. It is more than a little uncool. Yeah, leaving your child destitute to be with a woman who's only six years older than her when you're 40 is... Yeah, ooh, No. Ooh. Yeah, her, uh, her father started out as, like, a loving, supportive figure in this story, but it turns out he's just kind of a dick who turned his yeah, back on his daughter just, for oh. just a bouncy pair of tits. <laughs> Sorry, child, I need to date this other child, barely older than you in age. Yeah, um, actually, most of the... Most of what we know about her private life, Barbara's private life comes from the descendants of her father and the second wife. Oh. They had they went on to have children and the the father's existing grandchildren are some of the people who've collected her writings. So her her half siblings descendants are the ones who are just like and then and then dear grandpapa utterly fucked over his previous children. Oh yeah, this isn't that nice. Isn't that delightful? Yeah, we the the letter that her father wrote to her announcing the divorce no longer exists, but we know what hap was happening around this time frame from her replies to him. Those <clears throat> those are still around. So, her father never reconciled with her. Barbara and her father never got along again. She later in life she actually wrote that her father, quote, isn't what you'd call a man. <laughs> Ooh. Harsh, Ooh. harsh words. 
harsh. So, but justified. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where Barbara's life goes off the deep end. So Helen, to her credit, tried to make the most of this situation. And in Helen's case, making the most of the situation meant that she and Barbara left on an extended tropical journey with nothing but their typewriters and their clothing. Basically living hmm. off the generosity of strangers. They spent a few months in Barbados, and then to avoid going back- That is a bit avant-garde. Oh, yeah, they went they went ham. They were going to go travel the world and write. That was the whole thing. They were going to move somewhere tropical and work on their books. Wow. To avoid going back to New England during the winter, because it sucks, they took a boat across the Panama Canal, and then they sailed to Tahiti, Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, and Honolulu. Again, with, like, no money. Wow. They were basically crashing Jeez. with whoever let them crash. This is, like, the extreme early 20th century version of, like- those new age moms who want you to like have no TV time and like no electronics time and just get back to nature. Except this is a time when like the average person barely travels past the end of their driveway in some areas of America. Like, like I just, this, this, like Helen, Helen Vollett just reacted to becoming suddenly divorced and destitute in a way that I think expresses a massive amount of privilege. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for the, for the time when she lived, making making the most of it. Just go be. If you're gonna be broke, wow. you may as well be broke in Tahiti. You may as well might as well be broke in Barbados, man. Why not? I kind of I agree. I agree. If you can do, yeah, man. <laughs> so on the voyage from Honolulu to Washington to return to the U.S., Barbara fell in love with the ship's 25 year old second mate, and was heartbroken when she had to leave him. So men. Men were trouble for Barbara. Mm. After they got back to Washington... I know how it is, except I have no you do idea not. how it is. They are not, they are not a problem for you. Just, just the middle-aged no. lesbians who insist on taking you to the opera. <laughs> They're so nice. <laughs> Very confusing. They insist on paying for everything. Because <laughs> they, wa- they want to date you. <laughs> and you never figure that out. <laughs> I just, they look so much, they're the same age as my mother. How was I supposed to know? (laughs) You are a hot piece of ass in the lesbian community. And you don't even (laughs) know it. And they're alone. (laughs) I am a middle-aged lesbian's dream. (laughs) Mm. There's there's a Katy Perry song about that, but it is not meant to be about you. So after getting back to Washington, the two moved down to Pasadena, California together, where they ran out of money. Oh, yeah. Immediately. Yeah, they they had really been getting by on pretty much nothing. So they finally ran out of money. Some wealthy relatives of theirs stepped in, and they sent Helen back to Honolulu to finish her latest book. Barbara found herself stranded in Los Angeles, a city she fucking hated with every fiber of her being, and she was living with family friends. The situation quickly became too much for her, so she ran away to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, she basically went into hiding. She was living in a hotel room and continuing to write poetry. The family friend she'd been staying with reported her as a runaway, and because she was still a child, the police went after her. Mm. Eventually, the story goes, police burst into the hotel room. Could you locate the? Could you locate my child prodigy? I seem to have misplaced her. <laughs> I just I can't fathom where she's gone. I've looked everywhere. I've looked under the sofa, under the chairs. She's not even under the chaise lounge. <laughs> More furniture than you will ever own, Jessica. Where could she possibly be? (laughs) So eventually police burst into the hotel room where she was hiding, and they apparently grabbed her as she tried to escape out the window. Oh, gosh. Yeah. The whole story, because... No, the whole story became a media circus that made national news. 
The Times ran an article on the whole thing where Barbara was quoted saying, I loathe Los Angeles. <laughs> Never one to mince her words. Very direct. If nothing, very direct. After that, though, Barbara moved to New York City to live with her mother again. Her mother, I don't know how she got out there, but she did. The two of them were still broke, though, so when Barbara turned 16 in the year 1930, she was forced to get a job to keep the two of them afloat. And if, if you know, this is this is our quick history hour. If you know anything about the economic situation of the United States in the year 1930, especially, especially the economic situation of New York City in the year 1930, yeah, you might understand not it's not a good year. She didn't pick a good year. You might understand this is... why that was difficult. Not the best time for a single woman to enter the, well, oh, with a lot of gumption to enter the workforce. Just months after the crash of the New York stock market. Just, mm, Jesus. Not, mm, you might want to delay that for another decade. Yeah. Then it would have been fantastic. So Barbara ended up taking a course in shorthand and secretarial skills, which she fucking hated, because she didn't mm. like seeing the typewriter used for a functional, soulless purpose when it had once held so much magic for her. <laughs> She did. She she saw it as an instrument of creativity, and she didn't like seeing it as a utilitarian tool. Oh, that's so funny. She took a job as a secretary, though, and this began... Childhood ruined. Just childhood shattered. Just just shit all over her dreams. Mm. So... How dare you use this for anything but art. It is for magic. Human achievement. <laughs> No, this began a very difficult period in her life for her. She was working long hours and getting up early to take the subway to work, and the MTA has always been a shitty, unrewarding part of life in New York City. Sexy though it may be. <laughs> Although technically, it was not the MTA yet. It did not yet exist mm. in 1930. Transit in New York it City, was... yeah, it was it was run by the privately owned Interborough Rapid Transit Company and the Brooklyn Manhattan Transit Corporation in the year 1930. Oh, that is fun. History. That is so American. Yeah. They're, uh, they were privately owned, and then the MTA bought them out. And now none yeah. of us can get anywhere. <laughs> the MTA is old. But at least it's cheap. <laughs> no, it's not, actually. It's hide hideously expensive. It's hideously expensive. <laughs> and covered in cucumber DNA. That's... Yeah, Jessica sent me a horrifying article this week about how uh, <laughs> some sick... My one true love. ...sick person who hates <laughs> themselves... Decided to take swabs of various surfaces around the MTA, mm. uh, around the subway system, and run mm. the DNA analysis. And apparently, half of the DNA. And no one at any point interceded and say that is something that man was never meant to know. Yeah, no, this is this is something that is for the old gods and the old gods alone. He was permitted upon this to continue upon this fool's errand of reaching knowledge that man was never meant to comprehend. No, he stared right into the abyss. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and the abyss stared back, and it was full of cucumber DNA. Yeah, the second most common type of DNA on the train is cucumber, which they sort of attribute to their computer system probably being too dumb to tell different plants apart. <laughs> but, like, half the DNA on the subway does not match any known organism with a sequenced DNA system. Horrifying. Yeah, it does not match any known <laughs> organism. Yeah, they found, they found uh, Tasmanian devil DNA on the subway. Which is just, like... Why? I've checked. There's Why? there's none of them in any zoos in the tri-state area. No, there's not a there's not a Tasmanian devil four miles unless some weird lady in a rent-controlled apartment who's been there since the last war, uh, is somehow keeping a Tasmanian devil alive 
under the guise that it is in fact, in fact, a very ugly dog. She might think it's a very ugly dog. Some poor fucking it's bastard. It's entirely possible. Some poor bastard in New York City is keeping a Tasmanian devil as a dog and just doesn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, he bites. Oh, he's a, he's a little aggressive. A bit of a biter. <laughs> he's a bit of a and biter. he's but got a real a good, he's a pointy loyal face. Boy. Yeah, I'm just gonna be in. I'm gonna be in Central Park someday, and someone's gonna walk something by me that is assuredly not a dog. <laughs> and you'll know what the fuck you'll is that. <laughs> I see. So I just wondered. I just wondered if it had anything to do with the weird face cancer. And then you just completely ignored my comment, and it was very strange because oh. I, I was pretty sure I said weird face cancer in our chat, and that seems like an interesting comment to me. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe you didn't know about the weird face cancer. No, I don't think I did know about weird face Tasmanian cancer. Tasmanian devils have a weird form of communicable face cancer. Oh, I did know this. It's like, it's wiped yeah, out like 80% of them. Yeah, each other in the face. Yeah, 80% of them have weird cancer of the face because they keep biting each other in the face when they're like fe- in feeding frenzies. Nice. And like, they're genetically similar enough that the cancer can just leap from one to the other. Which is, I think is just like a weird way of telling me, don't bite your twin in the face. I think there are some species that we should not save. <laughs> <laughs> I know, like, we... Just objectively The horrifying. white rhinos went extinct the other week. Like, there's some, you know, there's some species we should probably work to preserve. And there's oh, just, absolutely. there's some species that we're just not meant to survive. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, like, I, th- I think that's all that's on a list of the the endangered species list. It's like least concern, most concern, extinct. And then there's like a little there's a little sliver in there, which is just like too fucked up to exist. <laughs> <laughs> Let it die. Let it die. Let it die. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in June of 1930, Barbara Newhall Follett was going through her goth phase. She's having an emo time. She wrote, uh, she was working hard, working long hours. She had very little time to write. So she wrote, my dreams are going through their death flurries. I thought they were all safely buried, but sometimes they stir in their grave, making my heartstrings twinge. I mean, no particular dream, you understand, but the whole radiant flock of them together with their rainbow wings, iridescent, bright, soaring, glorious, sublime. They are dying before the steel javelins and arrows of a world of time and money. She keeps, her diary is much fancier than mine was at that age. No kidding. Jeez. That is, like, peak goth in terms of poetry. <laughs> that is just, like, like this the, these goss, gossamer terms for, like, just th- this feeling of ennui. Like, it's, it, it's super interesting because, like, like, to a lot of people, like, the idea of, like, you're gonna have to work for a living, you're not gonna, you're gonna have to, like, squeeze in your creative time in between like drudgery and like that's a norm for a lot of people but to her it has to be new and devastating and completely outside of her previous existence well and she came from a family of writers artists and academics this was absolutely this wasn't the norm for her at all her norm was creativity being on a pedestal and being the ultimate goal and also a reasonable way to make a living of activity and a reasonable way to make a living that's how her parents made a living absolutely until Daddy stole the royalties. <laughs> Daddy ran off with the secretary. Tale as old as time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, someday <laughs> when a mommy and daddy really love each other, but not enough to keep daddy from straying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I do like how, you know, how in- introspective and how reflective her diary is. Because at that age, my diary was basically like, Dear Diary, today I got drunk and threw up in a hot tub. Yeah, I, I was never organized enough to really maintain a diary. But sometimes I will, like, just discover old books that I wrote. Like, just old papers I wrote on. And... I'm pretty sure they should have, like, got me checked for schizophrenia or something. I'm just long strings of scrawled out, incomprehensible incomprehensible non sequitur. I assume that you spent a lot of your childhood with your eyes rolled back in your head just writing and speaking in tongues? (laughs) (laughs) That's entirely possible. Like, I didn't... I didn't remember half of this stuff, and I'm just like, why did I write a single word again and again and again for 300 pages? It is not too late to get you tested. I've been tested. It just, it took me two decades to get there. We, we should test you for more things. There's a lot. <laughs> more tests. There's a lot going on. I like on. tests. <laughs> So, Barbara did keep writing. She was getting up early in the mornings to write before work. And in 1934, she'd written two more novels. Lost Island, which I don't really know what that one's about. And, uh... Oh, no, I did. I think it might be about islands. Never mind, I put it in my... Her- that are lost. I put it in the notes. Uh, it's her darkest novel. Uh, her mm. her novels tended to sort of reflect what was going on in her personal life. The first one is about a desi- desire to escape. The second one is about uh, sailing to Nova Scotia, I guess. And mm. her third one is about a couple who end up shipwrecked on a deserted island. But when they're rescued, the woman doesn't want to return home. Which is sort of... Um, hmm. It sort of reflected what was going on at the time. She didn't feel a draw to civilization. She felt a very strong resistance mm. to city life and to... Um, just the cogs and gears of daily living. She wanted to withdraw. She did. And she also wrote a travelogue about life on the Appalachian Trail called Travels Without a Donkey, which is a play on the famous work Travels with a Donkey, which is a clever mm. reference if you were a nerd who had no friends as a nerd. child. Yeah. Yeah. Manhattan, living in Manhattan in general made her bitter, which is just kind of what happens uh, when you live here. Mm. That's the fun thing about like... It's in the air. I... It's just... Yeah. Despair has gone aerosol in, in Midtown Manhattan. Not not that I'm going to self-incriminate, but uh, there is a distinct possibility that uh, a person I was with last night was uh, observed by a stranger urinating in the subway system. And he just... Entirely possible. It's possible. Not I'm not saying that it happened. It but if it did happen, this person did not give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody here is just so incredibly dead inside that you can do whatever you want in public and nobody cares. Oh, I know. It was great. You could just... The entire time I was there, nobody questioned me. It was so much fun. <laughs> yeah. I was on the subway the other day and this, this man with very few teeth uh, got on the subway. I don't know what was up. He was not. He was not having a good day. He was in need of some. Someone should probably keep tabs on where this man is, but he just mm. started screaming, "I'm not gay. I have sex with women. I'm <laughs> not gonna fuck a man up the ass." Just ag- <laughs> like he was aggressive, and he was sitting right next to people and screaming this in their faces, and nobody the loudest, the loudest, most extended no homo ever to be recorded. Nobody flinched. He sat down next to a woman who was just reading a book, <laughs> and without looking from up from her book, she just dug into her pocket, took out a dollar, handed it to him, and just went right back to reading. <laughs> 
I will literally pay you to stop. It's just nobody here gives a fuck. But nobody, none of us care. No. N- nobody, nobody cares. <laughs> no. But like. That's very nice, sir. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're like, that's good to know. That's good to know. I was wondering, you know, eh, if you wanted to fuck men up the ass. Deepest curiosity in my heart. Oh, my God. I can die fulfilled. <laughs> Now, if you don't mind, this is an interesting book. <laughs> if you can tell how she felt about New York City by a passage from Lost Island which she wrote about Manhattan. So she wrote, Not even a cat was out. The rain surged down with a steady drone. It meant to harm New York and everyone there. The gutters could not contain it. Long ago, they had despaired of the job and surrendered, but the rain paid no attention to them. New York people never lived in houses or even in burrows. They inhabited cells in stone cliffs. They timed the cooking of their eggs by the nearest traffic light. If the light went wrong, so did the eggs. I don't like civilization, she said, to the rain. So, that's some emo shit right there. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is right up there with, like, painting your nails black and listening to chemical, my chemical room. Hey, that is... hey. <laughs> I feel, I, I, it's I feel beautiful. personally attacked by that one. <laughs> As you should. At the beginning of this, she was me. Now she's you. Oh, yay. I told you, this is my this is my personal hero. Um, no, she went she went full emo. Uh, I have yet to prepare eggs using a traffic light for guidance, but it's good to know that I could. Mm, good to know that they are regular. I'm not even really sure why we have traffic lights in my neighborhood. You just you just sprint across the road screaming at all times. Oh yeah, you just you just go. You just go. <laughs> Cause if you if you go when you're not supposed to, there's a chance you'll be hit by a car. But if you go when you are supposed to, you're pretty much... There is a chance you'll get hit by a car. No, you'll get it's hit by a bike a messenger. It's almost a certainty you'll get hit by a <laughs> goddamn bike messenger who's delivering somebody's <laughs> fucking seamless order. Yeah, yeah. And, like, at least the at least the car will probably be going slower in order to make the turn. <laughs> I am gonna die because a... St- the bike messenger will not slow. Yeah. I'm gonna die because a stranger couldn't wait an extra five minutes for their pad tie. <laughs> That's how I will shuffle off this mortal coil. You'll just get hit by a small man in bike shorts with, with, with like a... With like a large package of pasta. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> The Grim Reaper comes in many forms. In your case, it w- it will be bike shorts. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> For Barbara, though, um, without her father's guidance and support, neither of those novels was ever published. Mm. After finishing Travels Without a Donkey, she quit writing and she never finished another significant work in her lifetime, as far as we know. Yeah, well, she was missing. She was missing her editor, man. Yeah, she, she just couldn't do it. Her nephew actually self-published Lost Island in 2012. So you can actually read that one on the website if you want to. I will post a link somewhere cool. on the social medias. But yeah, you can read the novel in its entirety, and it is incredibly emo. So emo. Wonderful. Um, in 1933, Barb cut my life is into pieces. This is my last resort. Poetry is the poetry is the only true, 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 true expression of man's hey, soul. Hey, <laughs> that you are quoting the greatest poet of our time, Mr. Papa Roach. <laughs> The Roach, as he is known. (laughs) Mr. Roach. (laughs) Father Roach. Last resort is the howl of our generation, and I stand by that. (laughs) I agree. I, I, no, no denying that. Suffocation. No bleeding. No breathing. Don't give a fuck if I cut my my arm arm bleeding. bleeding. Breathing and bleeding totally rhyme. 
It's fine. Oh, absolutely. Don't think about it too hard. Uh, <laughs> Art! <laughs> so in 1933, Barbara met a Dartmouth student named Nickerson Rogers, which is not the kind of name you hear anymore. Oh, gosh. Nickerson Rogers. <laughs> that one went to the way of the dinosaurs for a reason. Oh, yeah. That is that is right up there with, with Tasmanian devils for things that should not be alive No, anymore. Nickerson. <laughs> Men named Nickerson. Properly extinct. She had been carrying on kind of an off-on, long-distance relationship with the sailor that she met up until this point. Mm. But then when the twenty five year old yeah, but uh, oh, he gosh. was always at sea. But when she met Nickerson, she kind of forgot all about him. There's actually a letter where this guy, a man conveniently not currently out in the middle of the Atlantic. Well, her first love when she met Nickerson sort of wrote her a letter, being like, "Don't fucking go off with that guy. Come on, don't go off oh, with some yeah. college party boy from." Dartmouth. Do not. And she wrote back a letter that was basically more a more eloquent way of saying, nah. <laughs> I'ma do it. So she, I'm a, I'm I'ma do it. She it. eloped with him. She eloped with Dickerson. And basically mm. immediately, which is the kind of rash, terrible romantic decision that I can get behind. Mm. Just you must really admire that kind I of I do. Person. You just you meet someone who's kind of terrible and then you immediately Just the worst person you've ever met. Run away to Europe. And then you just immediately seal the deal. Yeah, you just <laughs> as soon as you can, if you find somebody awful who's willing to put up with you, what you want to do is you just want to legally bind yourself to them as soon as you possibly as can. Closely it, it, the more irreversible the better. You want to make it really hard to extract yourself from the situation. That's that's what I like, find works legally, best. Legally, financially, emotionally, you want it to be near damn impossible to get away from this person. Absolutely. Just go dig in. Yeah. Don't look back. So they had no money, and they backpacked around Europe and the U.S. for a bit before settling down in the small town of Brookline, Massachusetts. These are the weirdest broke people I've ever heard. Everybody of. in this story run when they run out of money, the answer is international travel, which is not That's the opposite of that's what That's not I how do. that works anymore. I don't know, maybe it costs more to live places than it did to just be a homeless, vagrant wandering yeah. through countries. Maybe maybe if you have sufficient connections, you can just hop from hop from like like apartment to apartment. I have no idea. Yeah, I, apparently that was the solution to all of life's troubles, was just international travel. Mm, so, wow. So, um, at this point in her life, she's 20 years old. It had been six years since she published a book. She was a teenage bride. She got married at, like, 19. She had no high school diploma. She never finished high school. And she was unemployed, which was not how she had intended her life to go at all. This This got a little screwy somewhere. Yeah. We do know that she was happy for a while. This is one of the happier times in her life, after her father leaves. So she took up more secretarial work, and she discovered that she actually had a talent for dancing. When you're good at one art form, you tend to be good at the others. So she spent a summer by herself in Oakland, California, studying dance at Mills College. She'd always wanted to go to college, but the circumstances of her life had never really allowed it, just economically Mm -hmm. and personally. She'd never really had the opportunity to do that kind of thing. So she was thrilled to have the chance to do that, even in this small way. This was probably the happiest post-father time in her life. That is rough. It's rough. But things really fell apart for her in 1939, the year she turned 25. If you remember from the beginning, if you were paying attention, this is the year that she disappears. Forever. Because we don't know. We still don't know what the fuck happened to her. We have no knowledge of her beyond this point. No. So after... But she's probably dead now. Oh, she'd be 104. So... 
I like there's oh well there's a slim chance there's then. a slim chance but maybe I, she's still holding the on. The odds are the odds are not in her favor. <laughs> so after returning from her summer at Mills College, Barbara became convinced that Nickerson was cheating on her. She spiraled into depression and she began using quote sleeping stuff to help her sleep. Which is Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's a f- I do not trust the sleeping stuff of this. No, era. this is a fancy way of saying that she became addicted to barbiturates. Yeah. Which, if you will remember, Mommy's little he- yeah, that's what killed Marilyn Monroe. So, yeah, Mommy's little helper in this era is literally meth. So, yeah, the stuff they used to take for sleep aids in 1930s was not Nyquil. It was some pretty. It was hard shit. It's the kind of stuff you can only get from a very questionable man in the corner of a bar these days. They they barbiturates are so strong and so addictive that they they don't like to use them anymore really for anything. No. The the best way to get a barbiturate today is if you need if you need a physician assisted suicide. That's what they give you. Mm. So they'll That's what those are. They'll for use it for days. pain for some surgery, but no. Yeah, like, they're not handing them out like candy anymore. No, now it's opiates. Absolutely that's not. what we hand out like candy. Yeah, now. that's that's the that's the new the good unfortunate, stuff. unfortunate like tic tacs of the of 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 our modern era are just oh gosh, we 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 keep trying to tame that tiger. We keep trying to make 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 pain relief. Easy, uncomplicated, and free of risk, but we have yet to figure it no, out. No, we're a dumb species that poisons ourselves for fun. It's, you know... Repeatedly. Oh, yeah. At length. No. So she became addicted to... Yeah, back in the day, you could just go to the doctor and be like, I am sleepy or sad or fat, and they'll just give you anything. Hard drugs. Hard drugs. The answer is hard drugs that would now be illegal street drugs, but back then were just medicine. Yeah, prohibition must have been a very would have be would have been a very weird time given our modern sensibility. You can't have alcohol, like, but oh god, if you can't have alcohol, don't be but silly. Would you like some meth? Yeah, you can meth. have barbiturates. Of course, you can have barbiturates. <laughs> Who doesn't isn't currently on a barbiturate? Everyone's doing barbiturates. Just no alcohol. It's like, just no alcohol. That's the that's the devil's work. <laughs> wine is uh, wine is uh, wine is wrong. Tool of Satan. <laughs> yeah, the devil's juice, but uh Yeah. It's like grape juice, but with more more Satan in it. <laughs> you hush your mouth and you take these uppers. Take your meth like a good lady. <laughs> mm, my favorite. Strawberry flavored. Her letters became very ominous in the last months of her life. She wrote to a friend, On the surface, things are terribly, terribly calm and wrong. I still think there is a chance that the outcome will be a happy one, but I would have to think that anyway in order to live, so you can draw any conclusions you like from that. Oh. Oh. So, no. Dark. Yeah, a little dark. So, on the e- I- that's the kind of letter if if you gave me that I'd be I'd be calling a wellness check to the NYPD. <laughs> yeah, there'd be there'd be NYPD turning up on my doorstep if I said that to anybody. They'd also be like, "That's mm. a weirdly elaborate way to phrase that, you know." <laughs> Miss Coma, that is that is baroque. Just, just spit it out, really. <laughs> You're not feeling so good. I get you. No. But on the evening of December seventh, nineteen thirty nine, Barbara and Nickerson had an argument, and Barbara stormed out of the house with thirty dollars in her pocket. She was never seen or heard from again. Damn. Yeah. So, in case you're wondering, $30 in 1939 money would be about $530 in today's money, which is, I mean, it's better, but it's not really start a new life kind of money. No, like, it's a weird amount of money to just have on you when you go out in the afternoon, 
Like, it's a weird amount of money to have on yeah. you, but it's not going to last you very long. No. For anything. If you run away with $530, you're coming back much sooner than you anticipated. Mm. You're not... Like, that's that's not that's not a survivable amount of money to have. You're not starting a new life in Mexico. Like, it's not happening Mm-mm. for you. No, like, that is, that is enough resources to have a really good week. And that's about it. Yeah. No, uh, no clues about her ultimate fate have ever turned up. We literally have no idea whatever happened to her. She's one of the greatest literary minds of her generation, and we have no clue what became of her. We do know that she didn't match any of the bodies in the morgue at the, in the Boston area at the time, but that only tells us that she didn't immediately die and end up at a morgue, but that doesn't really yeah. rule out much. It, no, it doesn't... Like, there's a lot of, like... There's a lot beyond didn't end up in a morgue immediately in this exact geographic location. In the area that she lived. There's a lot of other options. Yeah. If if she died, she wasn't immediately found and taken to a morgue in Boston. That's all we know. Nickerson didn't report her disappearance for two weeks because he believed that she just sort of stormed out and that she would come back, apparently. That's Mm. what he said. Uh, He waited four months to send out a missing person bulletin. He just thought that she left him. On the one hand, like, yeah. I do get it. On the other hand, like, it's suspicious in that he was her romantic partner. Yeah, if you're a woman, you're gonna get murdered. Chances are. Statistically. It's, it's probably whoever you are most, the man you're closest to in your life. Yeah, that's, yeah. Or the woman, if you're a lesbian. Do lesbians murder each other? I don't think as much as men murder women. Lesbian murder sounds like our the topic for next week. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that that sounds like a fun episode. <laughs> what a delightful! I was actually thinking about doing one on gay pirates. Oh, good, good. We are we have fun with this. We have a lot of fun. We have a we have a lot of fun. But no, it's it's normally your romantic partner is the most suspicious person if you go missing. Yeah. So in 1952, Barbara's mother actually realized that Nickerson hadn't been nearly as proactive with the search for Barbara as he'd led her to believe. And she pleaded Mm. with police to investigate the now 13-year-old missing persons case and to consider the possibility that Barbara's disappearance had been foul play. So she then basically... That is late. Oh, yeah. She straight up accused Nickerson of making Barbara disappear because apparently sass is a family trait. So she told him, all of this silence on your part looks as if you had something to hide concerning Barbara's disappearance. You cannot believe that I shall sit idle during my last few years and not make whatever effort I can to find out whether Bar is alive or dead, whether perhaps she's in some institution suffering from amnesia or nervous breakdown. So that's pretty much as close as you can come to, like, I will find you and I will convict you of murder. Because Mm -hmm. I think you- Like, that is- all but accusing him of having done it. Yeah, I think you offed my kid, which I mean, he mm-hmm. he could have. We we really don't know. He very much could have. Like he's the last person who saw her. He's didn't seem particularly engaged in the search. Like it's enti- like his reasoning is entirely plausible where like, oh, I thought she left me, but like did she have a pattern of leaving him? No. No, no. She, like she she was apparently still all about him because she was very upset. He was also seeing someone else, right? She, mm-hmm. she he was cheating on her. Yeah, he was cheating on her. She was upset that he was cheating on her. He has a motive here. She's inconvenient. Right? Like But still we don't know. We just we really don't. We really have no idea. Unfortunately, Barbara's mother never did find out what happened to her. 
since the missing person bulletin was sent out with Barbara's married name, which was Barbara Rogers, and not the name she was known by, Barbara Follett, the press and her fans didn't even realize that she'd gone missing until fucking 1966. Which is quite some Quite time. late. Her mother, Helen, co-authored an academic study about the works of Barbara Newhall Follett that mentioned that Barbara had disappeared, and people flipped out. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> how would you feel if, like, if Stephen King wasn't terribly prolific, but then you just heard that, like, oh, yeah, he's been missing for, like, two decades. Right? Like, it's weird. It's weird. It's weird. It's weird. Like, even back in the day where, like, information didn't move as quickly as... It's weird. Oh, my God. Harper it's Lee, weird. the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, didn't publish another book for, like, you know, 287 years. And, like, yeah. people still gave many shits about her. Yeah. People still cared deeply when she published a new book out of the blue. And people still mm -hmm. cared deeply when she died. She published her first book as a young woman and then went decades without publishing again. Yeah. And if... It was still a big deal. If someone had it popped still up... Have been a big deal if she... Yeah, it, yeah, in 1990, if they'd been like, oh, yeah, by the way, she's been missing since the 70s, people would have oh, freaked yeah. the fuck out. Yeah, that would have been upsetting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other weird thing in this case was an essay that Barbara's father published anonymously in the Atlantic in 1941, for some reason, called To a Daughter One Year Lost. It's part guilt, and then it's partially a list of celebrities that he felt certain could not go missing without someone noticing, which was an odd thing to do. Mm, but yeah. it was basically like, well, if, if she went missing, someone would notice, and if he went missing, someone would notice, which is basically exactly what we were just doing. And... Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, is that he pub. But it's slightly weirder to do that as her dad. It's weird, and also he published it anonymously, so nobody yeah. realized that it was about Barbara Newhall Follett. What? <laughs> yeah, I don't know why he did this. This would. That's completely like there's no context. No one knows what the fuck you're talking it's about. It's like if Jennifer Lawrence went missing for a year for some reason, and then like no one realized, and then her family wrote an anonymous letter about it. Like, yeah, like, just tell people. This is a famous person that people care about. It's just that, like, we don't... There's no clue that that's who this is about. If they just figured it... Because, like, part of the problem is just that the family is so disjointed. Like, the mother assumes that the husband is going is doing something about it. And, like, the father is, is, is distanced and estranged. But it's just, like, somebody needs to take point here. Yeah. Somebody needs to use the fact that she is famous to get some attention on her case. They just... Because you can do that. They never did. They used her married name. That was a big thing. It was all under her married name. Yeah, that's that's kind of where the trail runs cold. We don't know anything else about her disappearance. Wilson Follett passed away in 1963, and Helen passed away in 1970 without ever getting any answers about their daughter's disappearance. Um, no evidence was ever located in the case. We have no clues, no traces of where she might have went, and we never found her body. She's, like, she's almost certainly dead by now. Like we said, she'd, she'd be 104. Mm. She died at some point. But the date and circumstances of her death are completely unknown. We have no idea if she died the night she went missing or if she started a new life. The only remaining, like, her writing is also gone. Like, she's basically just been erased. The only remaining copies of her original writings and letters are in six cardboard boxes that are in storage at Columbia University. You have to, huh. you have to be a student to check them out. Which you, I mean, I could go do it, but you have to, you can't take photos of them. I'll just, I'll just do it and I will know that I have read them. Mm. You're just, you're just gonna like, read them then whisper in my ear forbidden knowledge. <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> yeah, I, I could have requested them, but it takes a while to get, to get clearance for that. 
But um, mm-hmm. it ultimately leads to the question, what happened to Barbara Newhall Fallen? They want to make sure you don't eat them. Oh, yeah. Don't lick. Don't lick. It's bad. Do not lick old writings from 1940s. Mm. Mm. They're not nutritionally... They have no nutritional value. No. You you should not eat historical documents. I feel confident on that one. They probably have mold. Ew. You're going to be sick. Mm. Not only are you destroying history, you're destroying your bowels. <laughs> and then you're going to destroy a toilet. <laughs> no, that is an interesting question. Like, what happened to her? And honestly, we will probably never know. Because we don't, like, I mean, the case is unbelievably old by now. For it is a cold ice case. cold. It is zero Kelvin. Nobody even associated with her. There's nobody alive that knew her. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where you run out of the ability to, to ever figure this case out. So, on the one hand, she was a girl who was obsessed with the idea of escape. She wrote extensively about disappearing. Go away, sirens. Those are on your end. I think those are on my side. They are on your side. We're doing important art here. Get away. <laughs> art! Um, yeah, she was. She had written extensively about escape. Save people elsewhere. Yeah, and she'd also had a track record of running away from situations that made her unhappy. When she was unhappy in LA, mm. she just fucking took off and didn't tell anyone where she was going. She had done mm-hmm. this before, and she wrote a novel, two novels, about how much she hated the city and wanted to escape. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, though, like we mentioned, when women tend to go mysteriously missing after a conflict with their yeah. husband, there's kind of a dark but obvious explanation, mm-hmm. especially when her husband put almost no effort into finding his wife. It's usually not voluntary. No. Or, and like, yeah. I think I think there's something you said, but it's just like, she made exactly one runaway attempt when she was a teenager. Yeah. She was now an adult woman with an actual life. Like, it doesn't make sense to extrapolate to that, even if it was a very famous incident. Even famous, brilliant people are not immune from statistics, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, if if that's not depressing enough for you, there's also the fact that she was a depressed addict. So it's entirely possible. Yeah, she was addicted to like heavy drugs. Um, she was incredibly depressed. It's entirely possible that she ended up just as some sort of addicted vagrant. Like that's. Yeah. It's also possible that she committed suicide and just managed to not be found. Like there's a lot of depressing conclusions to this. Mm-hmm. The, but like, there's not a lot of good shiny happy. The the best possible outcome is that she ran away with thirty dollars and made a new life, yeah. and just never best never spoke to anybody in her family ever again, ever again. And not only that, but like completely gave up on creative pursuits. Yeah, or if she did, she just never published in her name again. Mm-hmm. She abandoned her previous career, her family, and her life, and just took off. That's the best outcome we have. That is the happiest possible outcome. Yeah. And it's bleak. Yeah. So, usually with these kinds of cases, what I'm most focused on is figuring out what might have happened to them. But in Barbara Newhall Fallas' case, I actually don't think it matters what happened to her. Like, it mattered to her, no. but she's she's dead by now, no matter what happened to her. And, like, I think ultimately the point of her life is that one of the greatest literary minds of her generation, if not her century, was completely robbed of a career by the forces around her. She mm-hmm. didn't choose anything that happened to her, really. She was abandoned by people who cared about her. She was thrust into the spotlight at an extremely young age when she couldn't handle it. And she was denied the chance to get a real education and have a real childhood. 
and the intersection of the era that she lived in and the limited opportunities for women meant that she once she was impoverished there was sort of no way out mm-hmm. so her life is sad it ended sad but it yeah it sort of just expresses that like even when women were in high positions in society those positions were always incredibly fragile yeah it's just her life is just sort of a reflection on how talent skill and brilliance will not always help you overcome the life you live Mm. sometimes there's just not much you can do so we don't know maybe sometimes talent and gumption cannot overcome maybe she made a new life for herself somewhere and maybe she didn't we'll we will pretty much never know but um her work is all we have left of her so i think probably the most fitting quote to end out this story is the final passage of her first novel the house without windows and it reads she would be invisible forever to all mortals, save those few who have minds to believe, eyes to see. To these she is ever-present, the spirit of nature, the sprite of the meadow, a naiad of lakes, a nymph of the woods. So that's the that's been the life and disappearance of Barbara Newhall Follett. We hope you've enjoyed the episode. We hope that you can sleep tonight. No, sleeping is lame. Stay up. Have nightmares. Scream on the inside. <laughs> Get a pillow. Scream on the outside. Live your best life. Remember that talent will get you nowhere and that your life, you're just basically a lost canoe traveling down a stream you can't control, buffeted by the you forces of life. upon the wind. There's <laughs> all the, uh, the idea that you have control and the ability to choose your own destiny is nothing but a carefully crafted illusion. And in reality, we're all subject to the whims of greater forces beyond our command. Sleep well. Sweet dreams. This has been Fat French and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I am Janelle, and I never want you to sleep or feel joy again. Night, night. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Fat French and Fabulous, and thank you so much for sticking around to the end. I know this one was particularly long. I just can't help it. Um, Barbara Newhall followed is just a personal hero of mine, and I, I had to do it. I had to learn everything I could about her. So thanks again. Uh, Thank you so much also to everybody who's left us reviews, either on our iTunes page or on our Facebook page or wherever else you can leave podcast reviews. Like I said before, reviews really help other people find the podcast, which helps us feel good about ourselves, which helps us motivate ourselves to do recording sessions at 5 o'clock in the morning. So if you can leave us a review, we would really appreciate it. And if you could tell your friends to listen to us and leave reviews, that would also be fantastic. You can just go up to them in the middle of the night and just whisper the name of our podcast in their ear as they sleep. That should do the trick. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast if you like us and you want to get updates about us on your phone as soon as the episodes come out. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, on Overcast, on Google Play, wherever it is that you want to subscribe to things. You can probably subscribe to us there. We also would like you to follow us on social media, not in person, just on social media. We're very difficult to stalk. But you can find us on Facebook at Fat French and Fabulous. You can find us on Twitter at Fat French Fab. We're going to try to be better about posting on those places in the future. Um, I'm definitely going to put up some material from this episode and we'll see uh, how that goes. So if you could follow us individually if you want to, I am on Twitter at very bad llama and jessica is on twitter at i am not a lungfish because she's in fact not a lungfish she is a jessica whatever the hell that means and uh yeah if you want to get updates about our lives about the podcast that's the place to do it so until then you can follow us on twitter and we will see you next week